And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Miss Beth Schuster. Beth Schuster has been the LA Times education editor for the last eight years. Previously, she was a reporter covering a range of beats. She was the lead reporter on the Pulitzer Prize winning stories on the 1997 North Hollywood police shootout, and she was also part of the team that won a Pulitzer for coverage of the 1994 Northridge earthquake. Please give a very warm welcome to Beth Schuster. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. It's wonderful to have such a great turnout on a great subject. Um, from the classrooms of Roosevelt High School to the White House to academia, school discipline has become a really hot topic in a very short time. Uh, and so it should be, frankly. Um, minorities, particularly black boys, face the harshest discipline in our schools. Uh, and in Los Angeles, they make up a very small number of the students in our schools. Uh, U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan and the Attorney General Eric Holder a couple of weeks ago held a summit on student discipline. Community groups all over America have been rallying for changes in suspensions and expulsions of students. Teachers, legislators, uh, all sorts of people have been involved with this subject. And change has come pretty fast, actually. Um, but according to the U.S. Department of Education, black boys are more than three times as likely as their white peers to be suspended or expelled from school. Laura Fair of Public Counsel Law Center here in L.A., which has pushed for new options for student discipline, has said that California issues more suspensions than diplomas each year. That is really despicable especially here in California. Uh, there is a wide correlation between suspensions and dropouts. And we are lucky tonight to have three people who represent three different aspects of this issue to talk to us. And we're just going to have a conversation about student discipline. There will be time for questions when, I, when, we, are, uh, when we wrap up. So um, I'm going to start on my left with Carlos Castillo. He is a Roosevelt High School teacher uh, in Boyle Heights, although he went to Garfield. <laughs> uh, he um, works very hard on student discipline issues, uh, and he is working with the Restorative Justice Task Force at Roosevelt. Uh, next to Carlos is Macy Chin, uh, Executive Director of CADRE. Now, this is a mouthful, and I have to read it. <laughs> Community Asset Development Redefining Education, a grassroots organization that works mainly with parents uh, and uh, has done some really remarkable work on student discipline with parents pretty much all over LA, but uh, largely focused in South Los Angeles with African-American and Latino parents. Next to her, Walt Buster, uh, founding director of the Central Valley Educational Leadership Institute at Cal State Fresno. He's a longtime educator, has been a superintendent himself, and um, spends time helping and consulting with superintendents and doctoral students. So I'm just going to start out uh, talking a little bit about an, a piece of, of student discipline, which is called willful defiance. And willful defiance, for those of you who don't know, um, is very subjective. And willful defiance can be 
The, three, the four of us could be sitting up here and a student could be in front of us with a hoodie on and refuse to take his hood off. Now, to one of us, that could be willful defiance. That could be in my face. I said, you know, I want you to take your hood off. You won't take your hood off. To somebody else, it's just a kid being a kid. Leave him alone. Talk to him about algebra. You know, it's a very subjective kind of thing. It's a very, very important uh, concept and a very difficult thing in a lot of our classrooms in America. Um, Los Angeles Unified recently uh, passed a resolution that no more saying no more students will be suspended for willful defiance. It was the first district in the state to do that. Um, how it's playing out is, is something we can talk about. But let's talk a little bit about willful defiance. Um, let's start with you, Carlos. How does it play out in the classroom? You're a social studies teacher. You probably see this. Uh, have you suspended students for willful defiance? Is it, is it an issue in the classroom? Um, it definitely is an issue. Uh, willful defiance, though, is one of those things that you know, when a teacher prepares uh, in their credential program, you know, we're supposed to take classroom management courses. And um, depending on how much, uh, you know, you kind of study the theories and the ways to address, you know, when a student is being, you know, openly defined in class. Um, also, uh, depending on your own personal experience as a student, um, you know, I mentioned when, you know, we were speaking before we came up here, depending on um, even, uh, your social class, your ethnicity, there's going to be a different, you know, interaction between the teacher and, and that student. So not only, you know, is it something that, you know, each teacher has a different definition of, right. but then, of course, each teacher has a different reaction to that. Yes. Um, so you're always going to have students, you know, testing the boundaries. That's what high school students do. Um, you know, so it is a problem, but when I learned that willful defiance is actually the, or was, the number one thing that students in LAUSD were suspended for, right. and we're talking about hundreds of suspensions a year, I, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. The, you know, in, in my head, I always assumed, and, you know, and I, I've been in the classroom for 16 years, that I thought, you know, it has to be something else, right? It has to be fights, it has to be vandalism, that's a big issue. When I saw willful defiance, and I said, are you kidding me? And it could be as, as something in my classroom, the way that I would you know, categorize it, something as simply as a kid doesn't want to take his hoodie off. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that I would you know, even remotely want to suspend a student for. Right. But if that child was in another class, he may and very well take be the suspended, hood off. of mm -hmm. course. And, and that's, right. you know, that's what we have in, right. in, in our schools right now, unfortunately. And Macy, what do parents say about that? I mean, do they think that it's the teacher's fault? Do they think it's their, I mean, what, what is sort of their feeling about a child being, their child being suspended for willful defiance? Well, first of all, I actually um, want to suggest that they might not even know. You know, it's a very subjective uh, category and hard to justify. Really, it's kind of like my word against the child and, and yet, it does play on a lot of the, uh, I think, the fears of, of most of our parents where they don't want their child to be seen that way. And so if that's what you're told, but you're not really given context or you're not really explained what the whole situation was. Um, and I think willful defiance is, is unfortunately something that can really divide the, the parent from their own child. And, and oftentimes 
without the explanation, without uh, a sense of trying to uh, look for a root cause of the behavior, uh, that really can form a reputation. And I think when our parents feel that that's what's happening, it feels like a, a, a bias that continues to play out mm-hmm. over something as simple and subjective as willful defiance. And over time, you, you know, their kids will get suspended for something else, and again, and again. And it really can lead to a spiraling of just an overall negative perception. I'm sure it happens among teachers. The rumors spread. And then I think the hardest and most, most tragic part of it is that it extends to the family as well. And so if, even if you had an empowered parent that wanted to, that who knew their rights, like many of our parent members do, you know, the stigma, basically, of having a defiant child is often used to then further exclude the family, the, the, the parent, from trying to get to the root cause. How can I find out how to prevent this from happening again? And the stigma will often pretty much uh, be unfairly applied to the, the parent as well. And so many times um, it's a very difficult thing to do, which is to, f- to cut through all that and find from the teacher, engage in a deep dialogue where you can say, no, I really need to know what happened. Do parents, when a student is suspended. Are parents told why and, you know, sort of what precipitated it? And are they given the information? Uh, Well, I can mainly speak for uh, our parents in South LA. I'm sure it's true in a lot of places, though. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, I mean, it's, there's a paper, there is a printout that comes out, usually has the ed code Mm-hmm. reason, but mm-hmm. if it's not explained, mm-hmm. you know, what that actually means, what, precip- what led to that being the reason, uh, a lot of times there isn't a sense of what happened, with, if, especially if there's multiple kids involved in, mm-hmm. in a situation. Um, there's very little due process. There's very little information. Now, in LA Unified, parents um, and students are to be told that uh, they have a right to appeal a suspension. Uh, but prior to this year, it really kind of was, unfortunately, the school's word against the families, whether it be the child or the parent. And so a lot of times it's just we're suspending him or her for X number of days, bring him or her back on Monday for 8 a.m. conference, and then we'll let him back in school. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, that, the explanation happens after the fact. I see. So they learn so, about it after the fact. The explanation, uh-huh, yes. They might uh-huh. learn the reason, but they might not get I the see. whole story. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the question is, what are the right consequences for behavior? I mean... Teenagers are going to act out. Things are going to happen in a classroom. A teacher, especially with all of the budget cuts that we've had in our schools, classes are huge. Um, You know, a teacher has a set of standards that he or she has to get through. There's a test coming up. Teachers are under pressure. They're being reevaluated all the time. Things are happening. What are the right consequences for students? What do you do? I mean, you know, sending them to the principal, I don't know. It seems like an old-fashioned notion, but... I mean, Walt, what do you think? And you guys, feel free to jump in. You know, the, uh, what's really encouraging, and I just see the sight of a crowd disinterested in school discipline. And it's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. This is not coming necessarily from educators. This is coming from community members and young people who have been engaged to lobby their Congress people and, and their school districts. In, in order to sort of prepare for tonight, I talked to some superintendents in the Central Valley, where most of the students are students of color. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, in several of them, thanks to the California Endowment, there have been large grants given this year to train teachers in, and districts in how to accommodate this change. 700,000 suspensions in California last year, 40% of them for willful, dis, willful defiance. 
That's a lot of young people out of school, and we know that one or two suspensions in high school are great indicators of dropouts. So in, in talking, to Modesto, talking to Modesto, um, Pam Abel, the superintendent, I asked her, so what did you do with this grant? And her indication to me was it had to require deep, ongoing conversations in a collaborative way with teachers and parents about the change that, w that had to be made. And she had a great line that the entrenched culture in Modesto and probably in most school districts was that suspension was their only tool. That was the only consequence they had available to them. So if you go to Modesto now, you see a tiered approach to school discipline. The misconception is, is that anything goes, that a child will never be suspended. That's never been a part of restorative justice or the, 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 the new trends. But it has said that not taking off your hoodie probably does require, perhaps if it's a problem, conversation with peer groups and student leaders. There are other things for which you would be suspended or expelled, but those are serious, rare consequences. But I think the key was dialogue within the school system, within Roosevelt or within Modesto High School, with people to say, we're not blaming you for what's happened in the past, but here's some new data about your young people that you should know about. And the good intentions of zero tolerance or of willful defiance or of giving the idea that a principal was weak if they didn't send kids home that were um, disrupting classrooms, changing that culture, it's happening quickly, it's happening because of external forces, but it only happens if you have school leaders who are willing to have that dialogue. And it's, and it's tough because uh, you can tell us probably that not all teachers think this is in their best interest. So it has to be carefully crafted into a professional discussion. Yeah, Carlos, tell I, I us think, about that. I think that, um, you know, I, I find it very frustrating that I think teachers are, you know, some of the most innovative people when they're in the classroom and, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on us to cover standards and to, right. you know, cover a certain amount of curriculum during the year. And I see the kinds of things that teachers are doing in classrooms, and I'm, I'm just, you know, super amazed and inspired by it. But there seems to be something about, you know, discipline where we're kind of still using very traditional and I, I would say antiquated ways of just, like, there's a, you know, a couple of solutions or that we've accepted that. And, you know, to answer your question, I just think we need to really brainstorm the, the different ways that we can do that. And, you know, in one of my other capacities at Roosevelt, I, I've been the teen court coordinator for seven years now. Teen court is, you know, it's a countywide program. It's, you know, partnership with the school and the Los Angeles, you know, uh, Superior Court and Los Angeles County Superior Court and the Los Angeles Probation Department. But one of the cool things that we have there is that, you know, students become the jurors and they get suggestions, you know, from the court uh, mm -hmm. as to, um, you know, quote unquote punishments. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times they're free to develop their own. And you would see the creative things that, you know, kids are developing. And I don't think that we've given that enough space, you know, if we're, you know, moving it over to the schools, that we've given enough opportunity for young people to, to do those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the things that I've seen, you know, work the best, uh, you know, is a, a program that's going on, uh, you know, with the Los Angeles County Superior called, called Shades. You know, it's stopping hate, you know, um, 
uh, by educating students, you know, and, and what we do is that we actually give these kids an opportunity to um, sentence kids that have been arrested for, um, you know, potential hate crimes. The kids mm -hmm. have to decide whether it's a hate crime or a hate incident. Mm -hmm. And part of the quote-unquote punishment that mo a lot of these kids get is to go to a camp, um, a building bridges camp. Um, it's a human relations camp. Oh, where not the other kind of camp. No. <laughs> Juvie camp. It's, a, it, it's a, a human relations camp. And I think for traditionally a lot of adults would say, wait, you're, you're rewarding the kid by going away to the mountains for a weekend and do what? And, you know, sing songs. And, but, you know, it's very, very directed and there's a lot of learning that takes place. Mm -hmm. And when the students that have come back that have participated in that, they said, you know, we saw these kids that had this incident go on and at this camp they were getting along, they were talking to each other and actually spent a lot of time together and, you know, and that idea of repairing that harm that, that, that you know, was done. And, and that's, you know, my example of, well, what, what should be the punishments? We, we need to start thinking about them as, you know, punishments. You know, they're young people, they're still learning and we need to still, you know, give them those opportunities to grow and to learn from, you know, whatever, you know, mistake they have done. Um, so that, that's just the way that I see it. I, you know, I don't have a list of things when I get asked, like, what, what would you put? You know, I said, you know what, well, let's brainstorm. Let's talk. Let's mm -hmm. get some kids in here. And let's, mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's bring the, the you know, quote unquote offender in here. And, mm -hmm. you know, what does he or she think would, would help? That's what, what I think would, would, you know, would solve some of these things. And, and we need to get really proactive about that, being creative. And what about parents? I mean, uh, what are, do you bring parents into this, Macy? What, what do parents think they that should be done. I mean, I'm sure they don't think their kids should be home for three days without anything to do while they're at work. And You know, it's, um, it's interesting because uh, this is the domain of schools that parents are locked out of, quite mm -hmm. frankly, but blamed for everything. Whatever, however it shows up, it's their fault, but we're never going to ask you, you know, uh, A, what are your child's gifts? What are your child's strengths? How do I find something to work with? with your child, um, even though that is what t education is about, uh, both in pedagogy, both in practice, and, and it is what you do to get the best out of a child's learning experience. Um, and so we've been fighting for over 12 years now to, to create that access. Mm -hmm. so, and it doesn't mean, though, that just if you invite parents in, which is often um, the simple solution is like, well, we'll have a committee or we'll find out what the parents think. But it, unfortunately, this, is, this whole reaction to behavior such as defiance, the whole reaction to uh, punishment, and the whole reaction to uh, your child being removed from school brings up a lot of stuff. It brings out all yeah. kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. And if we're going to make something good come out of it, you've got to give it uh, a certain level of uh, seriousness. So rather than trying to just get a parent to comply with what I need from you as the teacher, um, it's, I'm sure, a tall order to some teachers to consider having a conversation with their child that is developmental, that is thinking long-term, that is trying to find out, I know he, doesn't really, he must not act this way all the time. What is he good at? What does he love to do? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, uh, there aren't, the schools are not preparing parents to play that kind of role. And so even if you create a table to sit at, it's usually a top-down, very condescending experience. Mm -hmm. And so it takes organizations, and thankfully, Cadre's been able to, to do this work for a long enough time where we feel like if you give it enough time, you can actually have the parents be part of the solution because they will be able to 
tell you about their child, and they'll be able to just be just as creative. Um, but the hard part, it does take power sharing. The teacher has to give up some power in the moment about that decision, about what to do. It can't just be her, you know, the teacher's word against everybody else's. And, and there has to be a willingness to recognize that if they don't do something better than just reacting, um, they could send this child down a spiral of, of you know, locked doors and, and imprisonment and, and a long-term poverty and lots of other things that come with that. Um, and so recognizing consequences of bringing the family in. And I just want to say that um, willful defiance is often really a crisis that should be turned into an opportunity for a relationship. And I haven't met uh, one really, really good teacher who's, who says that you have to suspend kids all the time. You know, if you talk to right. a really good teacher, like, like, that's not their first resort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, they would hate to do it, even if legally they had to do it sometimes, you know, because they understand what's really going on in that child's life. They have a relationship. Right. Is there, I'm going to mention the 800-pound gorilla that's sitting in the middle of this, um, but is there a cultural issue going on where we have teachers, some of whom have been in, in their classrooms and in their schools for a very long time, and uh, our population has changed quite a bit here in Los Angeles and elsewhere in California. Um, is there an issue where teachers, uh, you know, why couldn't it just go back to the old days? And why don't we just, you know, why don't we uh, send them to the principal's office? And I mean, how much willingness really is there to do some of the things that you're talking about, Carlos? I mean, if people did that in a lot of schools, it would make a difference. But just the fact that even the numbers that you said, Walt, I mean, those are huge numbers. I, I think that that's what, you know, the conversations that we have among colleagues and what I noticed immediately uh, when I became a teacher is that, you know, the, the, the teaching core is still largely made up of, you know, um, you know white teachers. Um, and then I think more importantly, actually, middle class, you know, white teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, the experience of those teachers um, is very different from you know, the demographics of students that attend, you know, Roosevelt High School. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, that teacher comes with a certain experience, a certain expectations, uh, a certain understanding of the world of, you know, the way that they were prepared for school. And th- there's, a, you know, budding of, of these, you know, two different worlds. Um, you know, I had mentioned that there's an experience that I had, and I use it as just a kind of like a little tiny experience of, you know, window into how different I think sometimes, you know, teachers view, you know, the students. Um, I was conducting a field trip where a student, a uh, couple students actually walked in the very morning that that field trip was going to happen to ask permission from the teacher, something that they're supposed to do a couple of days in advance. Um, this teacher that they walked into, uh, you know, the class of, they, she refused to basically sign their little waiver and basically saying that they're allowed to go on the trip. And they actually happened to, we happened to be going to a junior achievement, you know, personal finance workshop that day, which is very important. Um, they stayed behind. They, they stayed behind. One of the students stayed behind. Um, later, that teacher, you know, basically fired off an email to the whole staff saying, I just want everybody to know that I, you know, need two days to be, you know, in advance to be, you know, told that a student's going to be out. Um, And I want to tell everybody that I'm going to continue to refuse to allow any students to go if they don't give me those two days notice. 
Um, you know, I read this email on my cell phone as we're on the bus, you know, me minus that one student that actually decided not to go because she was so scared. She said, I don't want to go because I'm going to get in trouble if I go, and she didn't sign. Um, in my mind, I immediately thought, you know, this is an experience that I think has to do with what I'm talking about. You know, she's coming from a different world. Mm. I, I responded in that email later on where I said, you know, I want everybody to know that I'm going to continue to sign even if that kid walks in late and asks me at the last minute. Why? Because when I was a 10th grader, I had a teacher that invited me to go to UC Santa Barbara. And at that very moment, as a 10th grader, I was thinking of going to the military. And being on the campus of UC Santa Barbara changed my world. It completely changed who I am today. And that is something that I think that teacher, from her experience, had a very hard time understanding how mm -hmm. visiting a, a campus, a university campus, or having an experience outside of Boyle Heights, outside of their neighborhood, could be a you know, fundamentally life-changing experience for our demographic of students. Right. That teacher, you know, I, I can't find any, any, words to, any other words to explain it, is stuck in a mindset of like, these students need to follow rules. We have rules, and they're not following the rules, and I am going to be you know, that, you know, sentry guarding those right. rules, and I'm right. going to do whatever it takes. And if none of you wanna, are going to follow those rules as adults, I'm going to let you know that I am. And we, we cannot continue to behave that way as adults. When we are, you know, given the opportunity to serve these kids in that, you know, in, with, with those demographics, we need to under, understand the experiences that they're coming from, and we need to understand that these little things are the things that are very damaging. I mean, to me, that's just an example of, you know, just the, the culture, yes. you know, and the, the, the thought process behind, unfortunately, behind the way that a lot of teachers approach their practice. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, super, super harmful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if you just translate that into the way that they view discipline and the way, I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it's scary. It's really, really scary. And and uh, that's, you know, the reason why I'm just so adamant about, you know, trying to educate not just students, but of course adults too. Because I think right, right now I feel, I feel that at Roosevelt it's a, it's a fight to educate the adults about mm -hmm. alternative, mm -hmm. you know, uh, discipline models or restorative justice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's still a lot of adults that want to see that dean, you know, want to see right. that, you know, usually male, you know, tough looking guy that all the kids are scared of. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. And, right. and to me, it's like, I, I don't want to see that. I don't want the kids to, you know, for the person who's in charge of this and for the kids, you know, to fear that person. Right. But somehow, I think we're still stuck in that model. So, so Walt, what do you tell superintendents and principals? And, uh, you know, the, how does this... The, the culture you're talking about certainly exists in schools. But I would encourage you to sometime read the comments in newspapers about schools that are trying restorative justice. And see, oh, I read them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse, and, and I read them. The, somehow the perception in our culture is that schools need to be tough on kids and that we need to, that we're catering to kids that are gang mm. kids or pushy. Mm. The way to get past that, first of all, is to hire wonderful teachers and, and make sure that that's there. But also to start what we talked about in Modesto of trying to change that culture, inviting people onto the campuses, making sure that parents aren't afraid to be in school. That takes a new level of leadership. I would encourage you to go on YouTube and watch the uh, restorative justice uh, segments about McClyman's High School in Oakland. 
and see the difference it makes when instead of taking young people off a of campus, you bring them onto the campus with skilled facilitators to talk about what did happen. Why, why were you asked not to be in third period? Mm -hmm. The things you're asking about and the things you're saying, looking for the, the heart of the situation. I'd also encourage all of you to look real carefully at who's being elected to your school boards. Uh, we forget about that school boards, school districts are run by elected people. Those policies about zero tolerance, and, and I speak from that, some of the places that I used to work where elected people felt very strongly that they had to be very tough on kids. And maybe that comes from teacher pressure or parent pressure, but it mostly comes from the American culture of spare the rod, spoil the child. We were all, most of us grew up in a very different mindset. And when you start showing the data of parents aren't keeping good kids at home, they're sending us, you know, who they have. You know, we're, we're, we're getting the kids. Teachers, I don't know a teacher who said, I'm going in today to hurt kids. But I think there is a level of fear that has to be led by superintendents and school boards to teach us some better strategies. And I would encourage you to look at the McClyman's uh, videos to see what can be done in an urban high school that faces these challenges. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing we thought was, if we were really tough on kids, test scores would go up, that uh, schools would be safer. Neither of those things happened. Right. Schools became right. more unsafe and test scores went down. Mm -hmm. So and we need to start building relationships with the entire school community, especially with parents and especially with parents of color. You know, speaking of relationships, we did a series years ago on dropouts. And one of the things that uh, struck me about that was how many students we talked to who had dropped out of high school told us that there wasn't any adult on the campus that they went to who said to them, you know, you've missed five days of class. Why? You know, or, you know, where have you been? Or what's going on in your life? Or anything like that. I mean, a startling number of students told us nobody cared. Nobody seemed to really care. I mean, if I left for, you know, a week, they didn't care. So I figure, okay, I'll leave for two weeks. Okay, I'll never go back. Right. And, you know, it was real, and that's what happened. And um, I guess my question is, you know, how do you kind of forge relationships? How do you do that? I mean, counselors are swamped and overwhelmed. Teachers, as I said before, have huge classes. I mean, I think a lot of people, as you say, nobody goes to school thinking, I'm going to hurt kids today. But, uh, you know, how do you do that? How do you develop those kinds of relationships? How do you make kids feel like they're wanted and they should be there and there's an incentive for them to be there? Um, and Beth, I actually want to talk about, well, you, you started to talk about the 800-pound gorilla, um, but we didn't totally name it. And I, I think that actually most of these problems, this uh, distance between uh, certain teachers or administrators or school cultures, if you will, and the culture of the families and the community. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, and so I, I do believe that, you know, we are def definitely in many, many cases uh, dealing with not just class but also race. And, and some people will say it's not just race, it's also class. But however you cut it, uh, there's a fear of certain or disdain for, you know, people who don't have all their basic needs met and they're coping however they cope. And it's often extremely... Uh, racially biased, extremely based on, um, you know, our long history in this country of just 
not really healing in any way from, from the legacy of slavery and the, the, the fact that people are trying to exist, basically, in our schools, for better or for worse, however it's being done, and our schools have not repurposed themselves to embrace you know, the, 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 the journey of education for everybody. And I think that even if people get an education, now they have to pretty much succumb to a whole bunch of other cultural norms that may, mm -hmm. you know, they got to give up who they are. And many times, um, so we have success, and then we have no one that wants to come back and, you know, build up their own community. And it's a big thing to shift. And so this inability to build relationships is not just because people don't have capacities individually. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's also an incredible legacy of, of not, not being valued because you're taught to fear groups, you're taught to fear uh, dark people, you're taught to fear poor people, you're taught to fear people who don't speak English, uh, and, and who have to do whatever they have to do to, to eat and have, you know, shelter. And so, in many ways, this really is about rehumanizing our schools and actually recognizing that as much as we have to raise the academic standards that, I mean, I don't know why anyone in this day and age would be surprised at, at the crisis of the people, not the schools, but the, the, peop the crisis that our families are facing who, who you, can't, you can't tell them stay home, they'll go to jail. They go to school, they go to jail, you know, on the way to school, or they, get, they might get the cops called on them if they don't act right. Their parents will get called if they think something's going on. There's just a constant, constant regulating kind of a police state for many of our families, at least at Cadre. And so it's very difficult to build a relationship when that is the culture of how we respond to race, how we respond to poverty, how we respond to uh, people just not acting a certain way uh, as a result. And, and, yeah. and there is very little room, unfortunately, uh, when it comes to in the education world to talk about this because... It has to be evidence-based. It has to help raise test scores. All the interventions and the alternatives are supposed to make the teachers uh, teach better, the kids learn better, but there's this whole underlying crisis that we have, which is uh, really caring about every single human being, and um, it's not just a civil rights issue. It's really a human rights issue. Yeah, it struck me driving here how close we are to Men's Central Jail. I thought, oh, God, <laughs> talk about the pipeline. I have, I have an pipeline. example of, of yes. something that we're doing at Roosevelt, and I know we're not new to it. You know, there's been a lot of schools that have been doing that. It's, it's what we call advisory. Um, it, it's, you know, for those of, those of you that don't, under, uh, don't know or, or haven't heard of it, it's, it's basically a, an extended homeroom where the teacher gets, us, you know, ideally the teacher gets assigned a group of students, you know, as ninth graders, and these students basically are the one, you know, uh, thing that they, that they have, these students they keep for all four years. And in this extended homeroom, you know, the teacher is, is responsible for, you know, doing activities, whether it's icebreakers or, you know, getting to know the students a little bit deeper, checking in with them with grades, you know, checking in with them, you know, where were you for the last couple of days, you know, doing that contact, that, you know, personalization that, that is really important. Um, we have that at Roosevelt, you know, it's depending on the, the teachers and how comfortable they feel running those, mm -hmm. uh, those you know, that kind of classroom. Um, it's not your traditional, you know, standing up at the front of the class and, you know, it's sitting down in circles sometimes and talking and, you know, just going around the room and checking in and, you know, talking about the, the issues that are going on, you know, outside of school, inside of school. Um, it's an idea that I think has a lot of potential. At Roosevelt, it hasn't worked out, you know, as well as it could because, 
you know, it's also something that we, a lot of teachers didn't get trained on. Mm -hmm. um, I had a little bit of experience, you know, doing camps and stuff like that, where I, I kind of had a little tool bag already that I knew the kind of activities that work well in, in that kind of setting. But, you know, teachers that are not familiar with that are kind of right. just, you know, feel that they're being told, here, do something extra with the kids. Right. Um, so the idea is a very promising one, and I like it. And I think that things like that, I think, is something that we, we should explore. I always you know, envision having the students come at the beginning of the school year, and the first week is you know, basically stuff like that, where the kids are getting to know each other right. and doing activities, you know, even you know, learning how to speak to each other and yeah. the rules of the school in a very, in, you know, a little bit more relaxed setting, as opposed to the first day of class, they're getting handed syllabus and you know, grading scales, and here's what you know, the requirements are gonna be of the class. That's right, well, what you're saying is very common in private school. It's they do icebreakers. They start school two days early so that yes. they can do things like that. Yes. You know, they and, go, they and go then camping. They do things. And then before that, taking the staff through right. the experience right. as well, where right. we're going through it, and they're taking us through, you know, those icebreakers and getting to know each other as right. staff members, as adults. So then, then we can impart that those same skills and that same, you know, uh, you know, kind of activities for right. the students. Right. But. It's interesting in education because the pendulum swings so far on on different issues. You know, we've all heard about sort of reading where one, you know, one year it's all about phonics and everybody has to do phonics and then the pendulum swings and it's all whole language and everybody has to be able to read primary texts and literature and stories. You know, is that going to happen with student discipline? I mean, we're getting to a point where, you know, kids can come to school and talk through class and, you know, put their feet up on the desk. And I mean, what is this going to look like in five years or 10 years from now? What do you guys think? Well, I hope, I hope, I hope it doesn't swing answer. back and forth. Probably will, but I hope not. <laughs> not the, 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 uh, <laughs> some good indicators. The new funding model requires parental involvement at the local level. Um, that came from the governor's office. I, I never thought he'd be able to pull that off, that we actually have equity in funding where students most in need get more resources than other students. That, that's a great indicator. Whether school districts take it seriously and have serious parental involvement, that's still to be seen. But right. I think we've said over and over again, we need more resources, mm -hmm. we need more people on campus who, who have mental health backgrounds, we need mm -hmm. people who speak native languages that can go out into the homes. There's a great program in Cincinnati where the involvement begins the minute a baby is born, people from the school district go to the hospital. This is your neighborhood school, wow. let us tell you about it. So it's not gonna be just another, there's no program that's gonna solve this. Right. It's gonna take right. a, a change in behavior and attitude and, and we're gonna need people on the streets. Macy, to, what do you to, think? To what's, it gonna look, what's it gonna look like in five, and I have to wrap up, so that's why I'm trying to. Mm -hmm. But what it. do you think it's gonna look like? Well, we're not gonna let it slide backwards, five right? Years. All my friends in the audience. <laughs> uh, we are blessed at Cadre to work with many, many allies and, and have seen a groundswell, as Walt mentioned earlier, uh, of youth, uh, young people, families, uh, caregivers, parents, uh, really, this is their truth. So I think, you know, hopefully it won't move backwards and it'll always go on to the next challenge. It will continue to be challenging. Uh, and I think that the more we actually try to do what we're really supposed to do, whether it be school-wide positive behavior support, whether it be restorative justice, whether it be not ticketing students mm -hmm. anymore, mm -hmm. not arresting them, uh, all those things will cause everyone anxiety, and then we gotta get through the anxiety. And 
Uh, and here's hoping that if schools and institutions and educational leaders stop being afraid of the community and stop being afraid of these solutions that can come organically and, and in relationship with one another, that uh, we don't ever have to go back because it's not really about it not working. Oh, we try this for a year and it doesn't work. Uh, this this is it's a it's it's a long term process and um, and hopefully the. All the organizing and movement building we've done will make sure that communities won't let it slide backwards. But first, the, the, probably the other part of it is that uh, let, let families and let students and let, let everyone be trained in what we're supposed to be doing differently. Let everyone help create the climate, the rules, the norms. Evaluate it. Take feedback. And let people be part of changing the climate at schools rather than just, okay, we're not supposed to suspend anymore. And if we keep it at that level of change or if we think that that's all that it really is about. Now, this is about relationship. This is about taking one major, major crisis that's pretty much plagued our entire uh, history, uh, but it shows up now in this yeah. form and actually saying, you know, we've never gotten this right. We have another chance to get it right. Um, and guess what? We have millions of people to help us, um, and it does not, it will not come just from policymakers or researchers. It's going to come from people who say, uh, you know, talk to me and I will, I have a whole bunch of ideas. Carlos, what do you think? What's I, it going to look like in I, five or I, ten years? I always years? say that Roosevelt you know, High School. Yeah, I, I hope the pendulum's swinging because yeah. anything that stands still to me is like stagnant. Mm -hmm. I, I want, mm -hmm. I always envision it as like pendulum swinging back and forth, but it's also moving forward. So it's doing kind of like this constant forward movement. You know, um, things are going to look different. I always appreciate and again are inspired by educators that are very dynamic and can can adjust to the changing mm -hmm. things, and things mm -hmm. are changing. Mm -hmm. If, you know, 16 years ago when I started teaching, you know, I wanted everybody with their phones away. Well, there wasn't even phones back then, you know, pagers <laughs> away. You had to have your pagers away. Papers. Pagers can't be out, <laughs> you know, and I didn't want to hear the buzzing sound, and so, you know, if you walk into my classroom today, or if an, a principal would walk into my classroom, they might be surprised that the kids have their phones out, mm -hmm. but before they say, hey, wait, wait, I'd say, wait a minute, hold on, mm -hmm. they're they're responding to something that I just tweeted. They're reading an article that I just, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of things that we have to adapt. I mm -hmm. think, you know, the, the pendulum might swing in, you know, in, in the other direction, but I always want to think that it's moving forward and that we're adapting and that we're being, again, creative about that, not sticking to, you know, that, you know, carbon copy of what we've always done and then expect that everything's always done the same. We right. have to, you know, be dynamic and change and adjust. So that's the way I Pretty think. soon, though, we'll have an iPad instead of a... Yes. Oh, an iPhone. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to open this up to questions now. This question is addressed to the Roosevelt instructor. Um, I just wonder, um, what is your criteria for choosing which rules to break and which ones to, to adhere to? Because um, in the middle, I think you mentioned it was okay to sign the trip slip. Um, and yet, towards the end, you said, you were talking about, you know, rules and following rules. So isn't that a slippery slope where it becomes a personal judgment rather than a consensus? Well, uh, there might be some rules that, that I'm breaking, you know, <laughs> in, in the classroom. And I, I think the way that I, that I judge it, you know, if I understand your question correctly, is, you know, I, I try to do what, what I think is, you know, going to be student, you know, centered or student friendly. Um, something like not allowing a student to go on a field trip you know, because they broke one of your rules when, in my opinion, you see this bigger, you know, experience that they can have that can have a transformative experience on their life. You know, to me, that's not being student-centered. And to me, that's, that's just the way that I try to gauge things. You know, but at the same time, I'm going to bounce it off of, you know, other, uh, you know, colleagues. I'm going to say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? What's, 
you know, let's come, if we've never thought about that, if we've never, you know, you know, got into a conversation about that, let's have, you know, something, you know, either in writing or, or just, you know, uh, something that, that, that we could uh, abide by. That is student-friendly. I, I, that's the way I try to you know, consider myself. I try to see myself as a student-centered you know, centered educator. That, that's the way I would describe it. I want to get to the issue of the relationship building um, that teachers have to go through. One of the reasons I did not become a teacher is because um, of what I perceive to be the plethora of social issues that are facing the community. I mean, you're not just a teacher anymore. You got to basically be a social worker. You got to deal with issues of citizenship. You got to deal with issues of language. You got to deal with issues of mental health. You got to deal with issues of domestic violence. You got to deal with issues of drugs and gangs. And how are you, you know, as a teacher, going to be able to teach in that sort of environment? And so I kind of see a teacher's point of view saying, you know what? I need rules here because if I go down that road, there's a cornucopia of problems I got to deal with in order for that kid to learn. So, how are you going to um, deal with those social service issues in order for kids to kind of be able to learn? The way that I always think about it, as far as you know, and I think it's starting to you know look that way more and more, which I, I I'm really happy about. Um, in, in mental health, you know, they have this you know thing called wraparound services, you know, where you're just kind of, you know, going through a client and saying they need all of these things and you're just kind of, you know, targeting them with everything. Um, I don't know if we're totally caught up with that, you know, idea in, in, in education. You know, as educators, we sometimes only see ourselves as I'm just the instructor. And I think we need to start seeing ourselves as more of, you know, that which you actually mentioned. And now I know we're sometimes ill prepared to do that, you know, but if the school can provide those services, if there could be those mental health, those social workers, you know, that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, person represented from social services on campus. I don't know, this is just my, my vision, but you're absolutely right that I, I think we do need to, you know, see ourselves as, as, as that. And it is very difficult. And a lot of times, you know, money and budgets, you know, restrict us from doing that. But, you know, I remember being in a conversation with, you know, some of my colleagues were, we were asked, you know, by UCLA professors to envision our school, envision your ideal school. I mean, and we had teachers coming up with, you know, sleeping quarters for students that can't or are afraid to go home that night. And I just sat and looked at this list and I'm thinking, you know, this is what's needed, but we, we're not looking at schools like that yet, even though we know that there's that, that amazing need you know, we're talking about teachers were coming up with, you know, we need to have a place for students to go pick, you know, out clothes if they need something to wear clean for the day or take a shower. And those are things that we've never thought about. And those are unique, you know, needs in communities like Boyle Heights. There are those instances where students desperately need those things. So it is, we are more and more being asked to do those things. And it is tough, but we need, you know, that, that, you know, that funding, I guess I would say, and, and those resources for that. Well, do superintendents, I'm just following up on the question, but do superintendents um, want their schools to become uh, little social centers with um, mental health care workers and showers and cots? And <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much. Or do they want to raise test scores <laughs> only? There are a lot of people who want them to raise test yes. scores. And what they want is one discussion. What they have is another discussion. Mm -hmm. And what they have right now is, um, like you say, numerous social conditions that are coming. 
the state-of-the-art superintendents, the superintendent in Santa Rosa that I work with, for example, I have the notes from a meeting that she had with her staff. Let's make a list of everything that you deal with as a teacher, and let's go, let's go, what are the minor infractions, and how do we help you with that? All the way up to serious issues. But along that continuum, we have to have new personnel. Taking out school nurses, taking out the arts, Hopefully, the Common Core, whatever it is, if we ever figure it out, <laughs> has, has a, the understanding that working with clay or music, um, your, your experience is similar to mine. If it hadn't been for a, one teacher, I would not have gone to college, and none of, no one in my family ever did. Most people who've gone through that understand it's our school, and we need, we need to make that safe. We need to get past the, the arguments with teacher unions. We get, need to get past naming names and fighting with each other and realize we have what we have. Mm -hmm. let, let them keep failing and our retirements and our economy are not going to be in good shape. One thing is missing in the in a discussion is how can parents, teachers, students work together? You never mentioned that. So if I may tell you, uh, uh, within 30 seconds, in Korea and Japan, elementary school, first to the sixth grade, all the teachers are required, required to visit each student's parents. First two weeks, they get to know the children, and next two or three weeks, she, she or he visit all the children's parents. And children know, uh-oh, the teacher is coming. <laughs> and then what we do is, uh, well, as I experienced, for um, 30 minute dinner and chat, and then 10 minutes of talk all together, 20, min 20 minutes, parents tell them, children, go out and play. I wanna, we want to talk to your parents. <laughs> and guess what? After that, children will rebehaves in school because they know she. So I, when I suggested this to the one educational meeting, one speaker said, first, it's impossible. First, the teachers will not do it. It's too much work for teachers. And third, union will oppose it. <laughs> so that was that. So what do you say? Well, I think you kind of answered. <laughs> Macy. Macy, go ahead and tackle Well, I, I would just say that, I, I mean, there are people who do that anyway. And I think that there is not a high premium and there, is, there are not a lot of incentives to do. There are many teachers and uh, folks who I know who would, would do that and would willingly do that. Um, but it is not in our system's culture to reward that, to honor that. And it's, uh, you know, I, I dare say that I think people are even possibly looked down upon for doing that because it, it forces everyone to reimagine what teachers are supposed to do. And they want, they resent that because they don't want to do more. So I think, you know, I I don't, there isn't a simple answer, but what I did say earlier is that um, there isn't a relationship. So if people don't see, you know, if, if the school views the families as uh, they're coming here and I'm supposed to get this out of them so I can keep my job versus being student-centered, you don't have a shot. You know, there's no chance to do or even affirm that kind of idea. And I, all those barriers you just said are very real about, you know, what's in the contract, what's not, um, what people are paid to do, how long it takes, when they're supposed to do it. And then if there is the, the, the pressure of obviously raising test scores, no one's going to, they're going to pick the test scores. Even though not doing the relationship building will not, 
you know, causes the test scores oftentimes to stay stagnant. So um, unfortunately, I think it's a crisis in, 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 our, in our society that is really driven about individualism and competition and bottom lines, you know, not relationships. I think it, unfortunately, it's part of America and it's part of our school system. And uh, many of the families that are now in our schools, they come from, you know, we all come from places where that, that, that was the basis of a good education, was having a relationship with your educators. My name is Robert Howard from CCEJ. We do the camp that you mentioned. We also do trainings for restorative justice. Yes. Um, my question is, kind of loaded, I already know one of the answers that I have, <laughs> but uh, we hear all the resistance, like it takes too much time, I have 17 other things I have to do as an educator, as a dean, as a principal, as a superintendent, has a lot on my plate. Um, what needs to happen for us to get to the success that we can get through restorative justice, PBIS, these culture shifts, what do we need to do to get there? The, the first thing that I can think of is, is uh, again, I'm a teacher, but education, and educating of adults, I think, and educating of, 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 of uh, you know, instructors. Um, our, our summers, you know, uh, you know, for all of you, those that are teachers, you know that you, you need them to recharge your battery. They're very important, but it's also a, a time where you improve your practice. And it's also a time, I think, where we should all take that opportunity to learn those new things. Um, I think I'm, I feel really, you know, excited uh, by, you know, student teachers that are coming in. Uh, I've been in the profession 16 years, and, you know, which I don't think is a long time, and I already see a change. I see, you know, young teachers, you know, uh, you know, new teachers coming into the profession that think wholly different than how I thought when mm -hmm. I came in, that um, are approaching their instruction in a very different way than when I started. I feel like I kind of came in, you know, back then when they had emergency credentials and I didn't really have any preparation, and I kind of learned on the job, and luckily, you know, good people took me under their wing, I feel. And, but I feel like credential programs are beginning to change and, and really train teachers, you know, in very positive ways. So th that's my answer. I, I think, you know, training the adults to, to it's, a, it's a culture shift. It's a, it's a way of, you know, putting on, you know, different spectacles to view the world in a, you know, filter the world in a different way. Um, I think once, you know, teachers are, are taught that way, even with that example that I gave of that teacher, you know, my, my first reaction was to be, a, a, you know, upset you know, at, at her not allowing, you know, two students to attend. But, but I also think, and, and I, I understand how frustrated she, she may feel because a lot of times teachers are given little respect as to, you know, the rules that are set and then they're kind of ignored. And so it's, it's that, I guess, having that dialogue of saying, look, we know that this is, you know, what we've been told, what we've come to expect, but these are the way that things are changing. This is the population of students that we have, and these are their needs, and it's very different than the way you grew up or what you experienced or, you know, any set of things. So that's one how the, I feel. One of the yeah. tricks maybe to keep those good young teachers there past the five-year mark. Yeah. Find a way yeah. to keep them there. Walt, yeah. what do you think about that? I think that um, that's, that's such an apt description of many urban schools. Mm -hmm. the, the answer is that it's taking place now through people talking to each other and just acknowledging the issue. Uh, a few years ago, we wouldn't have had this, this size crowd to talk about this. Right. We would have been talking about zero tolerance policies. and I don't think, think we were even aware of what we were doing to men and boys of color mm -hmm. in, in such a dramatic fashion. Mm -hmm. 
I think the thing that's going to happen, that's going to make the biggest difference is changing the voter populace with our young kids. That um, the anti-school issues, the anti-taxation issues, that's not what I hear from the young people in Fresno and other places that are going to city councils and into school boards and getting these policies changed. So that to, that to me is so dramatic and it was so quick that it gives me hope that, that we can have newer people. And it, I know many older teachers too who have felt that the system was so resistant to change that they gave up and left after the five mm -hmm. years or something. Mm -hmm. So we've got to change that culture within schools. It's not just money, it's time, it's support, it's better communication strategies. The press is a huge player in this. You know, um, th there, there are no good movies about educators about school districts. There are heroic teacher movies. Mm -hmm. But I want to mm -hmm. see the movie made about Los Angeles Unified changing the <laughs> the system. That, that's a movie worth really? going to see, you know, and um, but right now it's about the heroic individual effort. It's got to be the heroic community effort that makes it work. I'm George McKenna. I'm a retired, uh, recently retired superintendent in LA. I've been a superintendent in four different districts and pleased to see Macy and okay. we work together in Cadre in local district seven. And they did make a movie about him. Yes, they did. Um, I, was, I was hoping that didn't come up. Uh, they paid the actor a lot more to pretend to be me than I ever got paid to be me. Um, but but um, uh, the issues are, are vast, but they're also resolvable. The issue of resources, and my position is that having come from the segregated South and been segregated all my life until I got out of uh, New Orleans, um, we never got the adequacy. You talk about equity. We, we struggled for equality. And we struggled for equity, which was affirmative action. We never got the adequacy. And we still don't have adequacy, especially in places that need it the most. <coughs> when you have students who get suspended, they get suspended for reasons. Some of us are teachers, some of us are students. But they also don't have any resolve of the issue other than say, well, don't suspend him. But how do you cure his pain and the pain of the home from which he comes? We're carrying a lot of baggage that sometimes is not visible. Um, we talk about advisory, and I appreciate advisory. I've had many teachers tell me, I don't like advisory. I don't have, I, my subject is the reason I'm here. I don't want to get to know the student that I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to visit their homes. You know, I don't come out here in the daytime, let alone at night. So I, my, my car won't come this far. And so this issue of relating to students, are you in a place you want to be, or is this a place where you get a good paycheck? And I'm not just demeaning teachers in general. The key, the key position to all of this is not a school board member or a policymaker. That's important. It's the principal of a school. The principal of the school's ethic, work ethic, value system, knowledge base can help the teachers to grow into a position they've never had before. And sometimes, I guess, if you've seen principals and all of you have been to school, this, I think the tragedy is everybody who's been to school has an opinion about school. Because we've been to school, we think we know how to run schools. And like, I've been a patient in a hospital, so I really know something about hospitals. That's not true. And what you have are you need specialists about how to run a school. And when I see Mace's uh, agenda that pushed us to trying to reduce suspensions and other kinds of things, bringing in parent involvement, uh, I, I put together a program called the Educational Civil Rights Agenda, because educational civil rights is the greatest civil right we haven't done yet. The question is, if there is a question in this, is how do you, how do you believe that all of this can be woven together and where do you start?
if you talk about policy makers, what policy is it that says there should be a zero tolerance for dropouts? Not the zero tolerance of a dropout. If you have a zero tolerance for a weapon and a, drugs and that, do we have a zero tolerance for a dropout? If you did, you wouldn't have to go recover them. They'd never get away. And so the, the, the zero tolerance is, do I really want them here? Or am I better off with some who are not here? I prefer George McKenna not to be here today. And when he's not here, why make a phone call? <laughs> if you make phone calls, they will come. If you build it, they will come. And some people, some people have proven that. Um, so I guess the question is, where would you start? Because you can go on with a whole lot of things about what ought to be done. And you mentioned a number of things, teacher, superintendent, et cetera, the community activist group, the media. Um, where would you start? One thing that I would hope is that the governor would not once again veto the bill to take willful defiance out of the education code as a reason for suspension. Uh, Los Angeles Unified did that. It was vetoed statewide. That's one, one small, and it's what you're saying. It's, it's instead of saying, let's make a list of what's wrong and hold people to it, let's start making a list of things that are positive that we expect people to do. That's a different mindset, as you know, from being a superintendent. Most, usually we got things that said, you can't do this and you can't do that. But that'd be one small thing I would do is ask the governor not to veto that next time. Ask the California Teachers Association not yeah, to. Yeah, well, that's the other thing is that we need to change that. We have a lot of, a lot of conversations to have. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know my answer, Dr. McKenna. Uh, you know, I think we have to let families and parents back in the school and be part of the solution and not man over-regulate how we, you know, instead of using parents, um, I think that we, and I say that because once that happens, I think there are a lot of things that can be addressed through that relationship. And so when the question of where do you start, everything will be important because it's about their kids. Everything will be important all at once, and uh, it will push everybody to be the best person they can be on that school campus. And I know it means you have to accept parents too, which is a whole nother conversation, but, um, and you know from our engagement of your office that it, it is a constant struggle to just accept the families as they are and try to figure out what can I work with and do something positive with. And, and I do think at the end of the day, we have to redefine education, unfortunately, and repurpose you know, educators, unfortunately. I don't think it's, it's not gonna get any easier. We are not, people are not getting better housing, they're not getting food, they're not getting anything more. So it's only going to be a, a more demanding uh, arena. Be the schoolhouse is going to be the place where we all try to do whatever we can. Carlos, what do you think? I'm just imagining, could you imagine like, you know, emergency tactical teams showing up at a kid's house, you know, like, like SEAL Team 6, but for, you know, education, <laughs> you know, dropping out of helicopters and they're rushing in there and they have supplies for the kid and they're like, you're going to get to school on time. And, you know, we heard about, I mean, they have, I mean, we, we do this for other things. I mean, I know, I'm hmm. thinking, you know, people say you're dreaming, but I mean, back to that idea of wraparound services, you know, I, I would like to have somebody on campus that I could send, you know, I mean, I have students that come to class at the beginning of the class and they're crying. And, and I'm supposed to do a warm up and I'm supposed to get them, you know, engaged in lesson. And they're sitting there crying. I go, I know there's something going on. And, you know, and I have 25 other students. Do I just take the student outside? I mean, it's, it, it's that. I, I wish I had somewhere to send them where I could be or have come. You know, I make one call and somebody comes and gets that kid and there's a team of people that immediately address that, that student's concerns, whether it would just be a, you know, thing that just happened that moment, that it's just, you know, somebody to talk to for just a couple minutes, or there's something deeper going on that needs, you know, more intervention. 
I mean, first thing I do is call you and recruit you as a principal. Oh, yeah. Well, so, thank you. you know, so that you could bring those ideas to a bigger group. Thanks. So before, before we conclude, I want to thank the California Endowment for being our co-presenter for tonight and all of our panelists for taking the time out of their busy schedules to have this really important conversation. Let's give them a huge round of applause. Thank you.